0: Back into Play by Playcast. It is the podcast about Play by Play broadcasters for Play by Play broadcasters, hosted by a Play by Play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best Play by Play announcers in the business or on days like today, producers and directors. Uh, Mike Roth joins us. We know each other uh, from working the CrossFit games together. I don't even know what your title is, Rothy. Sometimes director, I think executive producer
1: what are we Uh, we uh we laugh i wear a lot of hats i I don't have a hat on now but (laughs) i typically have many on um i am all of those things so i direct a ton of things uh both in and out of the fitness space and then uh, i co-own a company called open tab productions and um crossfit is our biggest client so we do all of the CrossFit events that live stream or air on a network over the course of their season. Uh, And then we do some things outside the fitness space. So uh, so I am indeed an executive producer, but uh, I get my kicks directing. So I try to do as much of that as possible.
0: But on top of that, uh, NWSL on television, long history in hockey in particular. Um, So we've got all sorts of different things in terms of creating television that we can dive into on this episode. I want to start though, because most people that listen to this broadcast not huge CrossFit people, um, so I don't want to I don't want well I guess I do want to drag them into the cult, but um, <laughs> I, I don't want to dive too too much into the minutiae. I do want you to tell one story though, and that is from a broadcast perspective. I think it's one of the greatest stories in TV. Uh, can you
1: tell the helicopter story? Ah, uh, sure. The uh the two helicopters. So the CrossFit Games when I started in 2011 was absolutely the Wild West. Uh, CrossFit was just becoming sort of known. Um, there were no they had, before 2011 they had done no real broadcast. 2011 we actually ended up on ESPN Plus or whatever ESPN's Plus was back then, um, and there were. Thankfully, no budgets at all. It was basically, what do you want? What do you want to try? How do you want to do this? And it was great. So I did my first games in 2011 and I was just sort of blown away by the whole thing, the Woodstock of fitness. It really was quite a gathering and it was the least organized thing I've ever worked on, which is saying a lot. Uh, But they brought me back in 2012 and we had an event To start the games, that was, uh, we were on the, uh, we were at the StubHub Center in LA and we were on that campus. So you had a soccer stadium, you had a tennis stadium, there was a track stadium. And of course, CrossFit decided to do an event that used all of them at the same time. So, in trying to figure out how to cover this event, we knew we needed a helicopter and we knew we wanted aerial coverage for the weekend. So we had a helicopter booked and had a Our call time for that day was 6 a.m. At about 4 a.m., I was sitting in the executive producer's hotel room, Tony Budding, and I was explaining to him that I had come up with a schedule for the helicopter so that it would be refueling during the early heats, which were less important, less of of the elite, elite athletes and the later heats. And Tony looked at me and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we have to refuel the helicopter. And he said, Why? I said, well, the way a helicopter works is you put fuel in it and it flies around and then you land it and you put more fuel in it so it can continue to fly around. And he said, well, do you have to do that? And I said, well, you don't. But then when it lands, it never goes back up. So he looked at me and said, we need two helicopters. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, then we'll always have one in the sky. So we'll always have aerial cover. And I said, okay, when do you want this second helicopter? He said, for today. (laughs) And at four o'clock in the morning, he called our tech manager, Eric Thomas. He woke ET up and he said, and I quote, Rothy said he needs two helicopters. And I said, I'm in the background saying, no, 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 no. I, I didn't say that. And two hours later, we had a second helicopter. And so for the whole weekend, we had one up, one down. And Tony never had to not have aerial coverage and we didn't have to worry about refueling. So, um, yeah, that was, that was sort of my entree to CrossFit and then we just kept adding things for a while. Un- unfortunately there, there is some logic now and there is a budget and things, things aren't the wild West like they were, but that was a blast. Uh,
0: there, there is a budget now, but, um, even that being said, even if you're not a CrossFit person, um, I think from the the magic of television, You've had to create how you're going to cover this sport from scratch. And the pinnacle of that, and I think you've said this in other interviews before, is an event from a couple of years ago called the Capitol, because it literally started at the stadium in Madison, Wisconsin. And the 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 race, for lack of a better word, the, the event or the test um, moved to the Capitol in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, and you guys had to cover it. And that covered a span of three miles. So you've yeah. got to cover an event for three miles. And it's not just a race. There's all sorts of other things involved along the way. How do you sit down as a television producer and say, it's almost like the Apollo 13. It's like, we need this to fit in this using only this. Uh, What's that process like?
1: You know, the thing that I love about CrossFit is once you see an event, you'll never see it again. So every event is different. And for me it allows me to use this a part of my brain that I don't necessarily have to use in the planning process for say a basketball game, right. Or a hockey game, you know, how many cameras you have, you know, where they go, the rules don't change. The amount of players on the field don't change. They move in a linear direction, you know, CrossFit is not like that at all. And, and so every event, the, the programmers see everything as a blank slate for them and they can, Create whatever they want, and so for me, literally, we'll find out what the events are anywhere from four to six weeks before we do the event. Now that's what how that's how they're currently programmed. That will change up to and including during events. So the capital event about six weeks before we actually did the broadcast. I was told, hey, we're thinking about this event, and it's going to take place at the Capitol building in in Madison. And that was sort of where they left it. So we went out to the Capitol building and we looked around, and there's this amazing set of steps. There's 48 steps that end at the top of the Capitol, and it's really a neat spot. It's really beautiful. And and it was the logic was we're going to use this in some way, shape, or form. That event grew into. We'll start it at the Alliant Energy Center in our outdoor stadium. Then we'll run through the entire campus. Then we'll run off campus, the two plus miles to the Capitol, through downtown, through neighborhoods. Then when we get to the Capitol, we'll start on one side of the Capitol, pick up something heavy, carry it to another part, run to another part of the Capitol, pick up something else heavy and eventually carry these giant sandbags all the way up the street leading to the Capitol and up the 48 steps and the finish line was at the top of the stairs. Honestly, Adrian Bosman who programmed that, it's his Picasso. It It is such a beautiful event. But it meant we had to cover miles and miles of competition and to make it more interesting, they did it in two heats, but they combined men and women in each heat. So now we were also covering two races, two separate races at the same time. Um, and so what I do, especially with CrossFit, is I get a whiteboard out and I start to draw. And typically, one or two whiteboards, I can figure most of these events out. So for the Capitol event, I ran out of whiteboards. I had to borrow a whiteboard from my neighbor because I used all my whiteboards, uh, both in my house and then uh, In the gym, sometimes we've got whiteboards and in the middle of a workout, I would think of something I would run over and I would draw something on the board and take a picture and then immediately erase it because this is all confidential. So nobody knows these events are happening. The athletes have no idea. So on top of trying to figure this out, we're trying to figure it out without letting anyone know what we're figuring out. So what we ended up having to do was we covered the start of the event in this North Park Stadium with our standard cabled and RF cameras. Then they left the stadium and they ran around campus. We were able to use true RF for most of campus. Then as they ran off campus, we had a camera on a a cart that was bonded cellular, and we switched everything to bonded cellular at that point. We had a cart with the leaders, we had two drones, one, the only, the drones were line of sight. So we had to put one of the drone operators in a boat and the boat mirrored the lead pack of runners so that the drone op could see his drone. The other drone was waiting so that when they left, they ran along a lake. And then when they left the lake and they ran into the, into town, we had a drone waiting for them there. We also had a car, uh, with a camera out, uh, out the sunroof, take them up a hill. And that operator had to then jump out of the car. And run to his next pickup spot, which he thankfully is a pretty elite athlete because he would get there just as the athletes were getting there. And then all of the cameras at the Capitol were bonded cellular, which brings into play a two second delay. So now you're cutting this as a director and you're playing this delay. So you have to get the things faster than you would. But the problem with bonded cellular is when people use their cell phones, your bandwidth does this. (laughs) <laughs> so when they got to the Capitol, the athletes and people all pulled out their cell phones and, you know, Instagram live, our bandwidth would do this. And so cameras would just disappear. So now we were cutting around that as well. And a lot of times as a director, you ready a camera. And then as I'd get ready to take the camera, it would be gone. So now it's, oh, shit, you know, what do we do? And, um, But So just putting it together, and then all of the technicians and all of the technical brains that helped me turn this from a whiteboard to an actual working model, that was incredible. How many people had to be involved to pull this off and all the different technology. And I will tell you that most most events, I sit down in my seat in the truck, and I feel very, very confident that the plan will work. For this, we sat down and I told everybody, this could work. <laughs> if it doesn't rain, if the wind doesn't blow too hard out of the north. If the train doesn't if show the up. the train doesn't, there's a train that ran right through the middle of their run. If the train didn't come it because we had no idea how that was going to time out. Um, but it was one of those events where everything came together. Everybody worked so hard. It took so many people. We had 24 total cameras for that but a lot of them moving to various spots so they had two or three different assignments and just the job everybody did on that and the way it ended like you couldn't script it better but the smallest woman in the competition was carrying a bag that weighed more than her and she was trying to get it up these 48 steps and typically in our events there's a time cap like okay at one hour everybody's done But the programmers decided there wouldn't be a time cap. Like Everybody was getting to the top of those stairs. And this little girl, Rebecca Fusilier, with this giant sandbag, just working so hard to get up these stairs, knowing she was last, no matter what happened. And the crowd at the Capitol, all of a sudden, all came in behind her. And you could almost feel their energy pushing her up the stairs, and the the pictures are incredible. I'm I'm as proud of that as I am of of almost anything I've done in my career. Just how that looked and how it meant, and and for me as a member of the CrossFit community, understanding like we've all been there, we've all been last in a workout, we've all gotten to a point where we didn't think we could do anymore, but but there was everybody, you know, helping you, pushing you, cheering for you. That was a uh, pretty mind-boggling so that that event the way that came together you know it was it it took a lot of people a lot of time but at the end it paid off so well worth it
0: that's why i always love doing crossfit um from a broadcast standpoint yes as a methodology but like broadcasting too i always tell people it's one of the coolest things because of that from a tv nerd perspective it's it's uh it's super cool but um it's just a piece of what your career has been
1: Am I right? Have Have you dr- drank from the Stanley Cup? I have. I have 1994 in the Rangers locker room. Uh, I was lucky enough to be working the uh, the both the the Eastern Conference Finals against the Devils and the Stanley Cup Finals for ESPN. And uh, when I was producing hockey back then, I actually worked those as a as a tape producer for our lead producer Tom McNeely. And um, yeah, as a lifelong Ranger fan. Then winning the cup in 94, I, I walked down to the locker room when we got off the air and, and their trainer, Mike Fulga, walked up to me and handed me the Stanley Cup. And I got down on my knees in the Rangers locker room and drank from the cup. And it is the top five moment in my life for sure. Um, tell me about uh, your
0: perspective, broadly speaking, in television. Because um, I, I know you coach talent in addition to just being a producer and a director, uh, and and we've had conversations over the last couple of episodes of this show of you know we had Drew Carter on um who does tv with the Celtics and and he he would always say our show like we want to have a great show this is how we talk about our show um and i think thinking of the broadcast holistically as this is the show everyone has a role in the show what is your take on um how the producer, how the director, how the camera people work in concert with the play-by-play people and how you would like play-by-play people to think about those relationships to have the best product possible at the end of the day.
1: So I think you see two vastly different types of shows if you watch enough sports on television. One is a show where everyone is integrated, where the producer, the director, all of your technicians everyone in that truck everyone in that building and the announcers are on the same page and i call that seamless television when you're watching at home you don't you forget that anybody's working on a show you hear two voices or three voices the graphics that go up make sense the replays are what they're talking about the shots are the people they're talking about you also see shows where there's two shows going on at once there's a show happening in the truck and there's a show happening in the announce booth and never the twain shall meet and it's there's nothing more frustrating to me than watching that i imagine if you were an average viewer who didn't have the background that you and i have in this it would still frustrate you it it shouldn't be that hard if there's a whistle in a hockey game and the analyst wants to tell a story about the home team coach it shouldn't be that hard to also have a shot of that coach And maybe a graphic that says who he is while that story is being told. The way that happens is one, you're always talking before you get on the air. You're always meeting. I don't think people understand the amount of time that goes into these broadcasts. The three hours that we're on the air is nothing compared to the time that gets put in leading up to that. And a big part of that is production meetings. It is... The the production team sitting down with the announcers and and going through things. What are the stories you want to tell today? What's important? What are we looking for? As an analyst, I love my analysts. I always ask them, what are you looking at today? Oh, well, you know, this team presses really well. You're going to see a lot of full court pressure. Okay, well, let's keep an eye on that. Sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it's hockey and a team is, is a really proficient dump and chase team. All right, well, let's watch that because then we can support that with replays. Then we can support that with graphics. We can actually track how many times they dumped the puck and how many times they, they actually got possession of it in the offensive zone. All of those things make the broadcast better for the people at home. But it only works if everybody's communicating. The other thing that's really important is, and, and I don't think people know this, there's a button that every announcer has in front of them called TalkBack. When they hit that button, the only people that can hear them are the people in the truck. For some of the announcers I work with, it's an ongoing conversation. They're talking to us. The producer's talking to them. They're letting us know. What I they apologize want. in advance. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> we're still trying to teach you. But you use that button, it's magic. Because if you tell us, hey, at the next whistle, I want to talk about number 17 in blue. Camera guys, I'll tell the camera guys, hey, at the whistle, camera two, 17 blue. The graphic guy calls up the graphic. Maybe the tape guy says, hey, I have a replay of this last shift. And now we're not telling a one-dimensional story. We're telling a three-dimensional story and we're all on the same page. Some announcers are allergic to the talkback button. And so we chase. And I think what some announcers don't realize is there's so much going on in the truck We don't hear every word you say. So sometimes an announcer will launch into a story, but the producer was talking to tape and I was, I'm calling cameras and neither of us heard who he's telling that story about. Now we're chasing. Now we're hoping that we get it right. That's terrible. Um, The other thing that helps is camera guys are listening to the announcers as well. So sometimes what will happen in that situation I gave is we'll, we'll miss something, but, bang, my camera guy's there. And I, I trust him. I know he's listening. So they're listening as well. And that, that's a huge help when you're trying to tell stories. So the the, the the advanced meeting, the discussions, you know, one of the nice things about like a team package is you work with the same guys 80 games a year. You're able to think together. You know, like my, my original, when I produced Taki ESPN, my director, Uh, Greg Breckle and I, we did hundreds of games together. We got to the point we didn't have to talk in the truck; We just think because we had been together so long. And that's the beauty of what we do is, is you really become way more than just a bunch of guys that work together, right? You're, you, you become a family and, and everybody on that crew takes pride in our show because it's our show. And I think it's, it's frustrating to all of us when we work with the, the few announcers out there that consider it their show. And, I, and I've always been insulted when announcers say, well, I'm the person that people see, so it's my show. Well, no, it's our show and try doing it without us because, you know, it's harder. So it, if everybody's pulling on that same rope and everybody puts in the effort to talk in advance, they put in the effort to pay attention during the game, you know, announcers use that talk back button now we're doing this beautiful, seamless television, and, and I know it seems strange. Like this is my art. Like truly, I, I can't draw a straight line. I can't paint. When I hang up shelves, or like this, or like I, I don't have any other skills. But you can I can deadlift five hundred pounds. I can deadlift four hundred and change. Not quite five hundred yet, but we'll get there. Um, I think that I look at it as an art form. And it matters to me. And every second of air is precious because you never get it back. And it also teaches you that, you know, you're going to make mistakes in real time. We're all human. We all do. You have to get really good at getting past those. You know, I was a hockey goalie growing up and I was one of those guys, if I gave up one goal, I gave up three more thinking about the first goal. And I had a coach tell me once, you know, you can't take the puck out of the net. Like once it's in there, it's in there. You got to move forward. And that's great advice. And that's what doing live television teaches you. Like, sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes cameras go out when you need them. Sometimes somebody makes a mistake. We all make mistakes. So how do you, you know, how do you pull together in those situations? How do you have each other's back? You know, one of my pet peeves is when an announcer says on the air, oh, well, you really can't see it from that replay. That's throwing everybody in the truck under the bus. And you don't want to do that. Like, again, we're all on the same team. And no, we're not always going to get it right. But when we work together, it's amazing how it how it feels for all of us. Like, when you when you leave a game and you feel like you've done an amazing job, you've done things right, you've all worked together, you've done the best you can that night, and sometimes there's obstacles. I mean, sometimes you roll into a city. There's four other events going on, and you get a crew that's not normally do, a sports crew, or you get a truck that's not up to snuff, and things are you know catching fire during the broadcast. And but you did the best you could, and you pulled it off. That's an amazing feeling.
0: Building off of that that theme and idea, what are things that on air talent can do for you as a producer or director? that make your life easiest before we ever go on the air?
1: The discussions in advance are so valuable. Oftentimes, for example, you as an announcer will have have had time to talk to the coach that we might not have because we're in the truck setting up for the show or talk to players. You'd be shocked how infrequently that information gets shared. If, If we know what you know, now we can think like you. We can follow you more easily. You know, if if we know that the coach told the story about Brett Hall and you start talking about the coach and we get a shot of the coach, but we don't know that you're going to take that right into the story about Brett Hall, now we're chasing again. Now we don't have that shot. But if we know that, we're able to follow you seamlessly again. Uh, One of the things that I insisted on as a producer from my analysts and my reporters, a minimum of three and up to six stories on each team that you want to tell during the game. And the reason we did that was twofold first. So we knew, and then we could support you, right? If you're going to tell a story about Hank Aaron and his career home runs, then we should have a graphic says that right now we all look like we're on the same page, but the other, the, the other reason that that list was important was while you're on the air and you're calling play-by-play play, or you're an analyst and you want to tell the truck something on that magic talkback button, you don't have time to explain a whole story. Same thing as a reporter. When you're trying to talk to the producer, but the producer is doing eight other things. So it became as simple as saying story four. Everybody in the truck, I would make copies of that list. Everybody had that list. When somebody, you know, when the reporter said story four, we all know what that story was. There was no more explanation needed. And I'm shocked that I don't see that ever. Now that I don't produce, I never see that. I tell people that all the time. The, the, The announcers that I coach, I always talk about a list, share your list. Because what I found was oftentimes you all have lists. You have the stories you want to tell. You have your notes share them and by sharing those notes again that that mind meld starts to happen we're all thinking the same we're all on the same page you can just tell your story and we can follow you and we can support you with video or with still pictures or with a graphic or with the correct shot you know There, you know, it'll happen where you'll have a a kid playing his first game and his parents are at the game and you find out from the PR guys or the SID where the parents are sitting. Okay. You've got the shot of the parents, you know, but when an announcer just launches into a story about the parents and there's no warning, now you got to find them. Mom's not there. She's in the bathroom while we're telling the story about mom. She's not there. All that stuff is so avoidable by just sharing information and using the talkback button. And those are the sort of things, share your information, be an active part of pre-production meetings. You know, I, I learned early on in my career, when I started producing, I would put together a format and I would say, here's what we're talking about in the open to the show. And eventually, after about a year of doing that, I had an analyst come to me and he said, you know, why don't we talk about what I want to talk about instead of what you want to talk about? And I was like, boom, yes, right. You're the expert. Brilliant. And so I built my formats with polls and I talked to the analyst in advance. And, and the other thing I think that announcers can, can do to make things better is to realize good ideas come from everywhere, and, and I find that producers and directors need to open their minds to this too. When you're in a production meeting, and a production meeting, by the way, shouldn't be the producer calls the announcer while he's on his way to shoot around. It should be the group, and it should include your font coordinator. Because you know what? Sometimes their ideas are awesome. It should include your lead replay guy. Because, again, nobody's seen more video than that guy. He can help. Play-by-play, analyst, producer, director, reporter. Everybody's got ideas. And it should never be a situation where the ideas only come from the producer or they only come from the play-by-play guy. Everybody's got ideas. And that's an opportunity. Those meetings are an opportunity to talk about things because, hey, this may not fit in the open today, but this may be something we can use in game or this actually fits better in our next game. Let's, Let's put that on the side. All of that. And I find that there's less and less of that now. People do so many games. And and I think when you're on site and you're traveling, it becomes easier to be together. When you're doing games remotely from your house or you're doing games from a control room, it's it's a vastly different vibe. And so I think that's one of the things I see less and less of. Like I do these college basketball games. Uh, We've never had a production meeting. There's not normally even any kind of real format it's like, yeah, we'll come on the air. We'll put them on camera. They'll talk about something. We'll do starting lineups. Like that part of it has has disappeared from a lot of television. And, and I think we're worse off for it because if you're an announcer and you're doing games and the producer and director are just voices in your ear, you've never met them. You don't know them. There's no relationship. It becomes harder to have those off-the-cuff conversations, you know? Yeah. I've always said, like, Tomorrow's game is really produced in the bar the night before. When everybody's sitting there, hanging out, having a beer, just shooting the shit. That's where the creative things happen. That's where the ideas happen. And I think there's there's less of that now. So, you know, as announcers, you've got to fight that. Like the urge to, well, I don't even really know these people. They'll just be a voice mayor. Share your information, share your prep. You're the experts. You know more than anybody let's make sure that we're able to support you in whatever you want to do.
0: Um, you've worked with a lot of great announcers. Uh, I, I cut you off before we started recording. Cause I didn't want you to spoil the story before we were recording it. Um, so not only have you worked with some great ones you've worked with, I think probably the great one. Uh, give me your recollections of working alongside Vin Scully and, and what made him so special and unique.
1: Vin is the best man there. There's I I'm, I'm, blessed to have worked with the people I've worked with. I have worked with some of the absolute greats in the game, but there's nobody like ben. Um I used to work uh, out in LA for a company called Olmeyer communications, Don Olmeyer's company. And, and he, he's a Mount Rushmore guy in this, in this business. And I was really, really lucky that he was my mentor when I was young, but um, Don, we used to produce the skins game and the senior skins game. And every year, I worked for Don on on auto racing, IndyCar, Formula One. Uh, But every year, as sort of a little bonus, they would send me to Hawaii for the senior skins game where I would be Vin Scully's stage manager. Now, you talk about the most useless person on the crew. Like, (laughs) Vin Scully didn't need me. But I got for three years in a row to spend all of this time with Vin. He was the kindest, nicest person I've ever met he had the best stories and my dad had grown up as a Brooklyn Dodger fan and obviously that's where Ben started and so one day I, I I had this old Brooklyn Dodger yearbook and I brought it in and I asked Ben if he'd sign up for my dad And he said, what's your dad's name? I said, Bill. He wrote to Bill, your son, Michael is an absolute treat. I'm so glad I have the opportunity to work with him. Vin Scully. And I'm like, wow. Like I'm just a guy who sits here and if you need a water or whatever, I hand it to you. Um, but he, I never heard you
0: called Michael before.
1: Yeah, it was, that was very, it's been a very long time. Uh, (laughs) Um, Vin, Vin told me the story of calling Kirk Gibson's home run on radio. And it like I, everyone I coach, every play by play person I coach, I tell the story to because there's a lot of tip to tail broadcast. Nobody ever stops talking. It almost becomes like a land grab between the play by play person and the analyst, right? Like as soon as you catch your breath, I'm diving in and I'm not stopping until I have to breathe but, but we have all these great microphones and, and every sport has these beautiful sounds. And, you know, Vin was doing radio, um, because, uh, Jack Buck was doing television for, for the world series. And then says that, you know, Gibson, Kirk Gibson comes up to the plate and he's, he's all beat up and he's limping and he, you know, they weren't even sure he could, he could play. And he comes in and. And he comes in as a pinch hitter and Vin sets the scene as only Vin could on radio where, where you can paint beautiful pictures and the pitch and he hits the ball. And Vin says he called the ball over the wall for the home run and Dodger stadium was shaking. It was so loud. And he said, he took his headset off. He walked to the back of the booth as Gibson's making his way around the bases and the stadium is shaking. It's so loud, pours himself a glass of water, drinks the water, here comes Gibson. He's rounding third base, then puts his headset back on. And as Gibson hits the plate, he starts talking again. Five, four Dodgers. And I asked him, I said, "How, "How? why didn't you talk over that? It's radio. And he said, the sound of the building told people at home everything they needed to know, anything I said would only have taken away from that. And this is the greatest announcer in my book of all time. Understanding that what makes you great is not just what you say, it's when you say it. And understanding that that space that he left, left more of an imprint on people than anything he would have said in that moment and i've gone back and and watched the video with his radio call dozens of times and i'm amazed every time at it but yeah then that's what a treat just a good good man
0: that's uh that's amazing um yeah no, that's that's uh it, it's the sacred the airwave is sacred and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier right like there's intent to everything that we do in any way you tell a story um, you're not just doing it to doing it to, to do it you're doing it for a very explicit
1: purpose absolutely absolutely and and, and again I, if, if people at home don't see that that's that's better right you know we're we're the man behind the curtain in a lot of ways and 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 I love that I love that you know I've uh, I, I've had you know dinner with people who are famous. And it looks like it sucks, right? Like I'm happy to be the guy pulling the strings behind the curtain. And, you know, that, that suits me really well. Um, But yeah, we're, we're all, it's all intentional. And that's what I mean. Like if it's intentional and it's, it's interfacing, we're all working together. That's when magic gets made. And, and, you know, it's hard sometimes to tell yourself, A hockey game in Edmonton on a Tuesday night in October is as important as game seven of the playoffs in the the conference finals. But you have to have that attitude. Every game that I do is the most important game I do in that moment. And even if the only person watching is my mom, who's going to love me regardless, I do the same job. Because that's my job, we don't get to mail it in. We don't get to say, now, man, this is three and four nights on a long West Coast roadie, like, yeah, it is, yeah, and you're tired, and everybody's tired, and the crew maybe is not up to snuff, and I can't believe we're in this truck, and God, this building sucks for what we, but you know what? You don't get to mail it in. Like you have to care because it's all precious. It's what we do. And again, it's not a job. It's an art form. It's not a hobby. It's really important to the people that do it. And it's an honor to get to do this and make a living at it. It really is. And, and so for me personally, every game's important. Every minute of air is important, you know, and yeah, it could be two minutes left in a 30 point blowout. I did a basketball game the other night it was a 35 point game, but you don't just stop doing your job. I mean, you do hope there's no timeout. So the thing will end eventually, but (laughs) all right, but, but you, you don't. And, and I think you understand that as well, right. From where you sit as a, as a play-by-play person. Yeah. What did,
0: uh, maybe part of this is the answer. Uh, what, what'd you learn from all those years working for Don Allmeyer?
1: How great this whole thing was like, all of it being a part of a team making something tangible being allowed to to express your art the way you want that you could travel around the world and take what you'd learned and teach it to people and they became better and therefore your shows became better you know Don was an incredible creature. Like, you know, back in in the old days, you could smoke in the truck like cigarettes. And I mean, I'm old. So I grew up in that era. And I went on the road with Don when I was 17. We would be in a truck and Don would have an ashtray in front of him. There'd be two cigarettes burning in the ashtray. He'd have one in each hand and one hanging out of his mouth. Like at the same time, he'd have a 64 ounce Coke and a hot dog. And he would direct these shows, and they were just visually incredible. I would watch this and I would think, that's what I want to do one day, is that except without the cigarettes. Um and when I first started producing, you know, I got to produce my first network show. I was 24. And my first couple of years of producing, Don was my director. And Don would definitely screw with you. Like Don would do things just to see if you had it or not. And one of Don's things when I first started producing with him was he was constantly talking to the announcers. Constantly. Well, that's a producer's job. Producer should be the one. It's not that the director can never talk to the announcers, but man, there was no space for me to talk because he was always talking. And so one day, as a 24-year-old young man, I looked at my boss, the guy who owned my company that I worked for, and I was like, keep your hands off that. I got the announcers. He's like, Oh, do you? I'm like, I do. He's like, Good. And Don would test you like that. But if you if you pass the test, then he knew, he respected you for it, and you were able to move on. And you know, Don was the guy who gave me the chance to go do formula one grand prix circuit um which i started doing i did 92 i did a couple races in 1992 and then i did all of 93 and and the bulk of 94 and in those shows you know it was guerrilla television you're traveling all over the world and you've got different crews everywhere and and they don't speak your language and i produced and directed those shows and you had a component back at ESPN in Bristol. That's where your graphics were coming from. And Don had the faith in me to send me out there and say, you'll figure it out. If you have any questions, call me. Um, and I and have I many said, questions. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I figured it out. I, I made some mistakes for sure. Um, I learned from those mistakes, but. You know, a big part of the Formula One circuit back then was you just worked your own deals with people. So you would get a world feed, which we meant that each in each country they would have a broadcast uh, broadcaster that would create a broadcast that was good enough to go to everybody's home. Then each country would either take that broadcast as is, or they would take it and they would add their own things to it. So for ESPN, we would have three of our own cameras. And we'd have our own graphics and then whatever else I could swing a deal for. So I did a deal with the helicopter guys. So we always had a direct feed of the helicopter uh, camera. I did a deal with Ford for real-time telemetry. And by deals, I meant, usually I'd buy these people a couple of beers. Like there wasn't a whole lot of money exchanging hands, but we had real-time telemetry in both miles per hour and kilometers per hour. Um, We would do, you know, we'd work with other countries and, you know, hey, you shoot two features on your drivers and we'll shoot these two and we'll share them. And so you could make those shows look really big just by working with other people. But I traveled the world for a couple of years on somebody else's dime and and got this great opportunity. And, you know, Don was the one who had the faith in me to do that. Don brought me in, you know, to the Indy 500. ABC did that every year and Don directed it. And one year he said, I want this guy to run all the tape rooms, like uh, all the replays, this is my guy. And and a lot of the ABC staffers were like, who is this guy? And why is he here? But Don said, that's my guy. And so I had the opportunity to do a lot of things I, I would not have been able to do by working, you know, for Don. But then also I learned so much of what I know and so much of what I use today, just from watching him and sitting next to him. Uh, it was, you know, again, like, like that era of guy, they created sports television, you know, and they anointed themselves gods and they, they lived well and they were able to try things and do things. And, you know, I think a lot of that creativity went away for a while. And now you're starting to see it again because of how the industry has changed, because of streaming, because of influencers and in social media. You're starting to see some really creative things out there. Um, and that's, that's what it used to be. When we started covering sports, we were figuring it out as we went, you know, and I was lucky to be in that, that next wave. So a lot of the, a lot of the initial hard work was done by guys like, you know, Don Olmeyer and Bob Goodrich. And there were so many greats out there, Chet 40, like, and I had the chance to work with all these guys. Uh, And, and that really, you know, that left a, left a, an impression on me that, that influences how I do things today.
0: Um, I feel like I could ask you questions for the next nine hours about all of these things, Um, and we could just be here forever. But at some point, some these people have to get out of their cars. Uh, (laughs) How many countries have you been to because of broadcasting, by the way?
1: Oh, I actually wrote this down somewhere, but it's almost 30 different countries that I've done shows in, and then 47 states. What are the three states? I've never done a show in Alaska. Fair is a bummer there used to be that uh that preseason basketball tournament out there that everybody that's how everybody got alaska on their on their bingo card but i never did that um you have to go run like a live stream for alaska anchorage oh i'm telling you i need to i need to do a show in alaska and then uh i've never been in either of the dakotas but there's also i have some doubt that the dakotas actually exist one dakota I, well, I think when somebody tells you they're from North or South Dakota, that's code for I'm in the witness protection program. Like, <laughs> I've never actually met anybody from the Dakotas, so I'm not sure. But those are the three states I haven't done. And yeah, I've, I've I've been lucky enough to work all over the world, and and you know, look, the industry, if you let it, will take you to wondrous places and Absolutely. some not so wonderful places too. <laughs> but, you know.
0: Um, Rothie, I appreciate you taking the time and, and being on here and uh, giving us the insight. And uh, always good to chat with you, my friend.
1: Oh well, thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a privilege and a pleasure. And uh, I hope I get a chance to work with you down the road again soon.